0: So this is the last um, meeting of the class. It's hard to believe that we went through a, a month already, but it is the fourth, the fourth week. And what I want to do tonight uh, is really finish. We were on the eighth point that I had to make about Nagarjuna, but I didn't really get done with it last week. So we'll finish that. And in connection with finishing that, we'll also study the Heart Sutra because it to um, show you from a Mahayana point of view what they thought they were doing. And I think there's some very valid points that can be made here about how Dharma works altogether, no matter what, um, what, what sectarian label we give it. And then um, if we have time, I'll end with a few more comments on what I think happened with the emergence of Mahayana Buddhism, and particularly the emergence of the notion of the bodhisattva vow. So um, the eighth point about Nagarjuna, which I started to go through last week, um, the final chapter, which is titled Analysis of Views, uh, and Nagarjuna's final verse reads, I read this to you last week, but I want to read it again. The final verse of his text is, I prostrate to Gautama who through compassion taught the true doctrine which leads to the relinquishing of all views? And I think the operative phrase in particular is relinquishing of all views. Uh, I made the case last week that I see Nagarjuna much more as um, trying to pull people back to uh, the kind of middle, the kind of non metaphysical teaching that I see all over the place. In the Pali Suttas and away from the kind of analysis that had become so dominant in the Abhidharma. Uh, because it seems that whatever they meant by what they were saying, the Abhidharmas had gotten into a very strong sense of view. This is it. This is what the Dharma is. Uh, there are these, um, how many? 75, 75 Dharmas that are what really exists and everything can be collapsed into, everything is made up of these different combinations of these 75 dharmas. But this is it. Um, And when Nagarjuna says relinquishing of all views, I take him very seriously. That dharma is about right view, but right view is no cherished view no verbal conceptual view that is held to be capital I, capital T, it. Uh, that when we think we've, we've got dharma in that kind of conceptual system, the tighter we cling to that conceptual system, actually the farther we are from right view. And there's you know this very famous teaching that uh, what is it that people cherish that, is, that needs to be uh, given up. There are th- four things in connection with. You can, can do it with the second noble truth, or you can do it in the, um, it the eighth of the nidanas. People uh, cling to or cherish sense pleasures, uh, the belief that rites and rituals will save us, we cling to our views, and the final thing we cling to is the belief that we are uh, that we are someone. Those are the the things that we tend to cling to that are so much trouble. And, um, you know, as I said last week, I think Nagarjuna is quite clear. Taught the true doctrine, which leads to the relinquishing of all views, and all views means all views. But despite the fact that Mahayanists take this text very seriously, a controversy did develop that, no, no, he doesn't mean all views. He only means wrong views. You should continue to. Cherish right views, just relinquish all wrong views, not all views. But as I said last week, I think this would contradict the raft parable of the Buddha. Um, And I'm going to say this right ahead of time. I actually see the Mahayana Heart Sutra as the Mahayana equivalent of the raft parable from the suttas. And I think that all forms of Buddhism are very, very prone to not taking seriously Uh, the fact that we really can never uh, capture the view in words and concepts that are really all that adequate. I think all forms of Buddhism really do want to become creedal and do want to say, this is it. This is what you should learn. Uh, Believe this, and you'll be okay. Um, and I also said last week, I think this is important. As a path factor, one wants to cultivate a relatively helpful rather than harmful views. That's not up for grabs. That, you know, when, you're, when you're a student, you need to um, cultivate right view and the, of the right views of the 10 skillful actions of body, speech, and mind there are three skillful actions of mind. The tenth one, which I really think is the most important, what is the most harmful of all wrong views, not believing in cause and effect. Or not you know, not realizing that actions and intentions do have consequences. So we do want as a on the relative path to cultivate helpful views, but they stop being helpful when we absolutize verbal conceptual views. Now, what I didn't get into last week and what I want to really talk about tonight, I think um, that what is liberating and what is truly useful, truly worth debating as to its adequacy or inadequacy is the method that we use, not the results of using that method. It's a very, I think, a very important point. What we really want to look at is does this method lead to helpful uh, conclusions? The emphasis should be on the method, not the results that one gets using the method. Because if you focus on the results of that method, you're going to come up with what my teacher calls a system. Uh, this is it. I've got it now. You're going to end up believing in a system. So um, from the Mahayana point of view, the problem was earlier Abhidhamma is not the method. Or maybe this is my point of view. I think it's Mahayana point of view in general, but certainly is my point of view. The problem with Abhidhamma is not the method, but that people seem to have stopped applying the method at a certain point and uh, said, these are the definitive teachings, the final list of Dhammas, this is it period. The uh, categories of Abhidhamma, that is the skandhas, etc., do have a nominal existence. But that doesn't mean they have an ontological existence as real phenomena. Uh, Avidhamists tend to leave the categories alone not to question them or ask whether we could come up with a better, different set of categories. In other words, the Abhidharma method is to take what seems to be entities and break them down into their component parts. We we all know that. But then instead of continuing to ask, well, is this the right set of categories? Should we break it down in a different way? They just stopped applying that method of further analysis and became. Uh, very attached to the results of their method. And when we go through the Heart Sutra, what you'll see very clearly is that early Madhyamaka or Madhyamaka deconstructs even the categories. That uh, Abhidhamma comes up with a list of categories. There are the five skandhas, the t- uh, 12 dhatus, the 18 ayatanas, the 12 nidanas, etc. There are these categories, there's a naming system. And the naming system really works pretty well. But the names themselves were never questioned. They became absolutes. And what the Heart Sutra is going to say is um, to deconstruct even the categories. Um, as I've got summarized here in my notes, all of the Nikaya teachings, that is the Pali Sutta teachings, depend on convincing people that there is no self in the Skandhas, the Ayatanas, the Datus, any of those Dhammas. There's no self in any of the Dhammas. But the categories themselves are not questioned, whereas the Heart Sutra questions the adequacy of these received and trusted categories. That's what the Heart Sutra does. It questions the categories also and says, you know, those are just mere names. That's all they are. They're nothing more than mere names. So um, the difference between Abhidharma and Madhyamaka, at least as the madhyamaka concede, it's the difference between saying there is no self in the eye, ear, etc. eye, ear, nose, tongue, etc. There's no self in any of those. Well, all Buddhists agree on that. And going on to say, and besides that, there is no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, etc. Now, obviously, they don't mean that we don't have eyes, because we do. What they do mean is that even those categories, which we've worked on so carefully, are not absolute final categories. They are a raft. They take us across to the other shore. When you're on the other shore, don't carry the raft around on your back anymore as the raft parable says so so um, strongly. Um, these two, I, the skandhas, etc. cetera, um, are only names, have only nominal existence, and are empty of inherent existence. So the early Madhyamaka would say that the Abhidharma gave inherent existence to the categories of Abhidharma, whereas we think that's a mistake to give uh, inherent existence to these categories in the Abhidharma. Um, and to hear those categories relativized could be quite a shock, especially if you've just spent 10 years learning Abhidharma. I used to do this, actually, in my Buddhism class. We would spend up until the midterm studying pre-Mahayana Buddhism. And then they'd have an exam in which they had to list the skandha, They had to list all these categories. And then I'd give that exam back with all the red marks through everything, and also hand out the Heart Sutra same day. And they were so mad, because I had made them learn all that stuff. And then the Heart Sutra says, oh, by the way, that isn't the ultimate truth anyway. Like, why do we have to learn it if, it if, if Mahayana is going to come along and undercut it? But you have to learn it, because as a method, Abhidhamma is very, very helpful. As a method, when you absolutize a method, or when you mistake, when you put more emphasis on the results of the method than on the method, that's when you start to uh, get things funny. And Mahayana does, in fact, use Abhidharma. Um, once you've once you've established that everything is is mere names, that there are is no reality, there are no real existence in the dharmas, that everything is mere names, then they go back and Abhidharma is studied um, a great deal, studied a great deal in Mahayana systems of philosophy, and it's studied before you get to Nagarjuna and Madhyamaka and all the teachings about emptiness. It's a very necessary uh, foundation. Um, but you know, relativizing what you've been trained in that's a, can be a shock. Especially when you extend it to the four truths, as Nagarjuna does, and is done in the Heart Sutra. So at this point, let's take, pick up the Heart Sutra. And I'll, um, it'll be, I think it'll be self-evident fairly soon. In This, by the way, is something that Mahayana This is a liturgy that's done just, you know, if you're, yeah, my eyes are bad. Um, it's done daily. It's done as part of the morning liturgy. Uh, In most Mahayana centers. And um, at this point, I'm not doing it daily myself, but there have been times when I've, I mean, I've really um, chanted this as a liturgy an awful lot. Um, The dates for the Heart Sutra, by the way, uh, it's not all that early. I can look it up in my notes later but it's not all that early it's not one of the early Mahayana sutras at all so thus have I heard the way all suttas start once the transcendent Victor was residing on vulture peak in Rajgriha together with a, it seems funny to read it rather than the to chant it, together with a great assembly of monks and a great assembly of bodhisattvas that's typical in Mahayana sutras that there's a bunch of Monks there who represent the early schools and bodhisattvas who represent the later schools. At that time, the transcendent victor, which of course means the Buddha, was absorbed in a samadhi on the enumeration of phenomena called profound illumination. The enumeration of phenomena would be Abhidharma. Also at that time, the Bodhisattva, the Mahasattva, Arya Avalokiteshvara, was contemplating the meaning of the practice of the profound Prajnaparamita, and he saw the five aggregates also as empty of inherent existence. That's a long sentence. Bodhisattva, Mahasattva, that's an eighth stage Bodhisattva. Um, There are 10 stages to the Bodhisattva path in the Mahayana tradition, and the eighth stage is um, almost to the level of enlightenment. There's just a few little steps left to go. Avalokiteshvara, uh, the Lord who looks down from above, he is the one that has the thousand hands and the thousand eyes, um, very beloved Bodhisattva in Mahayana Buddhism, the Bodhisattva of compassion. In Mahayana, there are Bodhisattvas that represent the cardinal Buddhist virtues. So Manjushri represents wisdom. Avalokiteshvara represents compassion. Um, Maitreya is the next Buddha. He's not quite in the same. He's a little bit different kind of character. So Avalokiteshvara was contemplating the meaning of the practice of the profound Prajnaparamita, uh, the transcendent virtue of wisdom. And what did he see? He saw the five aggregates. That's the five skandhas, of course. Also, as empty of inherent existence. So everything we said last week about inherent existence—that's what Avlokiteshvara realized: that that these categories are are nominal, but they're not—they don't truly exist. They don't have inherent existence. may
1: be a you people who don't know about that you might just
0: want Uh, Form, feeling, which I think is a bad translation for it. It should be, um, I don't know what the good translation. Sensation. Perception is the third one. Um, Formations is the fourth one. And consciousness is the fifth one. They're translated in different kinds of ways. But form, sensation, perception, uh, formations, and consciousness is a pretty standard list of the five aggregates. And this was the most fundamental exercise in early Buddhism. The Buddha over and over said, look at these five. If you can find a self in them, see if you can find a self in any of these five. Go out to an empty house, to a a tree, to a cave. Go somewhere and really investigate. Where is this self that we think exists? Can you find it anywhere? You will only find these five uh, aggregates, these five um, kinds of things that we experience. But you won't find a true self. You won't find anything that is really inherently existing as me. So um, that sentence is, is pretty key. You saw the profound present. Was practicing or contemplating the meaning of the profound practice of Prajnaparamita. and he saw the five aggregates also as empty of inherent existence. So he saw the five aggregates, and he saw that they have no inherent existence. Um, anything more I need to say about that sentence before we move on? Yes.
2: Okay, Prajnaparamita,
0: Prajnaparamita, transcendent wisdom or transcendent knowledge. Prajna is the same as Pana in Pali, so it's wisdom. Uh, I don't like the translation knowledge because it's not a body of information. It's more an ability, I I like to translate it as an ability to think outside the box. And um, uh, Paramita is the same as it is in Parami in the Pali language, transcendent or something pertaining to the other shore. So a lot of the paramitas are the same in the Pali text and in the Sanskrit text. So they, there are some differences in the names of them, and certainly the order is different. But in the Mahayana system, Prajnaparamita is the sixth of the paramitas, and it is um, the culmination of uh, one's ordinary training, when one really has prajnaparamita, then, then there's a kind of leap of understanding into a whole new level. So, you know, uh, so far so good. What I pointed out to my Mahayana students, because they all take this as a historical narrative, the Buddha went out to Rajgriha with his disciples and he and it happened, I don't know, when he was 60 or 65, or who knows, but you know, they take it as a historical narrative. And what I point out to them, which makes them very upset, is well, there should be something here that tips you off right away. It couldn't be a historical story, a historical narrative. And what is it that would tip you off that it can't be a, a, histori- a history? <laughs> But what what this text doesn't say, well, this is a great gathering. Couldn't be that many people in Vulture Peak because even if there could be that many people in Vulture Peak, there's something else. Yeah, Avalokiteshvara and Shariputra uh, having a conversation. Avalokiteshvara is not a historical character. He simply is not, you know, Mr. Avalokiteshvara, born in such and such a day, uh, lived, you know, 54 years here, however. Avalokiteshvara, uh, there's not even any attempt to base the stories or the imagery of Avalokiteshvara on a historical character. So uh, since Avalokiteshvara is not a historical character, and Shariputra definitely is, that should tip you off that something else is going on besides a historical narrative, which of course for Theravadins is, you know, that's no problem to you guys, right? It's a big problem to Mahayanists. And um, one of my friends who literally believed in this story, very, very intelligent woman, that literally believed in this story uh, until after I had sort of been on this material for three years, said that when she was at, at Volt, when you go to Vulture Peak, when you finally get to the spot where this where the Buddha is supposed to have taught this story. It is actually a very small peak. And there's a little kind of stone throne there. And um, there's a, like so many other Buddhist places in India, there's a Hindu priest who's got himself set up there. And he wants to do little pujas and blessings for money when you get there. And when we got there, my teacher gave him some money and said, go away, please. We're Buddhists. We really want to you know, do our thing at this spot. So he left. But very few people can stand on Vulture Peak at one time. It really is the case, like the Dalai Lama said. Uh, but she said that she got to the peak and then stood at the peak and looked out over, you know, the valley, and imagined that that Avalokiteshvara was just kind of hovering in space there, and that that's the way it was, like you know, Jesus rising. To The heavens when he ascended into heaven, or something like that. And, you know, it was very hard on her to give up that version of what this text was about. So, at being asked in this way, the Bodhisattva, the Mahasattva, Arya Avalokiteshvara, said this to Ayushman Shariputra O Shariputra, look, we. We have to we have gone one, skipped the prayer. Then by the power of the Buddha, Ayushman Shariputra said this to the Bodhisattva, the Mahasattva, Arya Avalokiteshvara. How should a son of fortunate family who wishes to practice the profound Prajnaparamita train? So Shariputra is always cast in this role in Mahayana Sutras. He doesn't know what's going on. He has to ask. And this is one of my many proofs that Mahayana is a later historical development. That you know, Shariputra is cast as the, the you know uh, the fall guy. He's always he's always he's very lacking. And so are some of the other major uh, of the old uh, you know the main teachers, the main disciples of the Buddha. But Shariputra really comes off the worst. So he says, how should a son of fortunate family who wishes to practice the profound prajnaparamita train? Now notice the little slippage here in the next sentence. At being asked in this way, the bodhisattva, the mahasattva, Arya Avalokiteshvara, said this to Ayushman Shariputra, O Shariputra, a son of fortunate family or a daughter of fortunate family? Um, who wishes to practice the profound Prajnaparamita should view fully in this way. So um, this is the representation that in the older schools, it's only sons who are, um, at least according to this particular version of the sutra. It's sons of fortunate family who get to practice the profound Prajnaparamita. The answer is this applies to both sons and daughters of fortunate family. And one of the things that's really characteristic of Mahayana literature, it's very odd, is that uh, women and girls are often given um, very prominent teaching roles in Mahayana sutras. They often show up, very learned monks. Um, And many people have said, well, that means Mahayana elevated the position of women. I don't think that's what was going on at all. But it's another literary device. To say, you know, our teachings are so superior because even women um, can, you know, can defeat the members of the older school in debate. Um, Now it's very interesting that Theravādins did the same thing uh, in some of the Avadāna stories about um, about um, Mahāprajāpati, the Buddha's foster mother, who was the first nun. They put into her mouth statements that Buddhist girls, even as young as eight, can realize the profound truths that non-Buddhists never quite get. So this literary device that women can get this teaching is used by both schools to show the superiority of their teaching over whoever they're debating with. Um, it's very interesting to follow the history of you know, how women's status has been viewed in Buddhism, through through the centuries, so should view fully in this way. They should view the five aggregates also as empty of inherent existence. And then this next four sentences are really famous: "Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is no other than form. Form is no other than emptiness." So. Um, Form is emptiness, form being the first skanda. Form does not inherently exist. Form doesn't exist by itself. Form only exists interdependently. So you have to always remember what emptiness means. And then um, in the same way, and then we get this long list, in the same way. Feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness are empty. So we've emptied out the five aggregates, the five skandhas. Thus, Shariputra, all dharmas are without are emptiness. They are without characteristics and have no birth, no cessation, no purity, no impurity, no diminishing, and no fulfilling. All of those, purity, impurity, uh, birth, cessation, diminishing, fulfilling. All of those were important categories in Abhidharma exercises to, to figure out which dharmas are pure, which are impure, how, why. So, you know, everything that you had thought you established, Madhyamaka says, hmm, let's undercut that a little bit. Therefore, Shariputra, in emptiness, this is really fun when you're chanting it. In emptiness, there is no form, no feeling, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no form, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no datu. There is no eye, datu, no mind, datu, up to no mind, consciousness, datu. So we've gone through the skandhas, the ayatanas, and the datus, and basically, said, as as final analysis, as the final word on what is real, none of those hold up. There is no ignorance, no exhaustion of ignorance, no aging, no death, up to no exhaustion of aging and death. That is what set of categories? The 12 Nidanas, Pratitya Samadpada. Which, remember last week, Nagarjuna said Pratitya Samutpada and emptiness are the same thing. So here in the Heart Sutra, it's being said differently. Um, that ignorance, exhaustion of ignorance, aging, death, up to ex- the exhaustion of aging and death, those are all merely nominal, um, merely nominal constructs. They have no ultimate reality. In the same way, this is, of course, what always gets people, in the same way, there is no suffering, no origin of suffering, no cessation of suffering. Oops, why did you make me memorize the Four Noble Truths, teacher? Um, No paths, no wisdom, no attainment, and also no non-attainment. And that's the end of the deconstructive part of the Heart Sutra. Kind of everything has been deconstructed, including the Four Noble Truths. And you know, if you just hear that on the face of it, it's very radical sounding, isn't it? No suffering, no origin of suffering, no cessation of suffering, no paths, no wisdom, no attainment, and also no non attainment. One of the things, well, I'll say two things that Nagarjuna said. He said that that if you understand emptiness well, you understand everything well. And if you don't understand emptiness, you don't understand anything. But he also said, if you understand emptiness wrongly, it's very, very dangerous. A famous analogy, it's like grabbing a snake from the wrong end. It swings around and bites you. So. A nihilistic view, you know the middle way is always between eternalism and nihilism, between the view that things are real and the view that nothing matters. There's middle way between those two views. But it's always said in Buddhism that the nihilistic view is more dangerous. So if you're going to have a wrong view, believe in eternalism. That's less dangerous than believing in nihilism. So, you know, be a th- if you can't be a non-theist, it's better to be a theist than an atheist. Which, you know, Buddhism is pretty well done. There's a lot of theism in Buddhism, tremendous amount of theism in all forms of Buddhism. Um, very little atheism because there's always that concession that if you can't land on the middle path precisely. Better to believe, better to have a wrong view that something exists than the wrong view nothing exists.
2: I actually grew up with uh, Buddhist parents who were learning when I was young, and so I kind of learned stuff not correctly. So I was told sort over of little Christian kids fear they're going to hell, and little Buddhist kids fear they don't exist. <laughs>
0: So um, any discussion of this material? No eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no appearance, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch. What's a
2: datu? What? What's
0: datu? Datu, the 18 datus are the six six, um, senses. What are the six senses in Buddhism? Senses plus the mind. Senses plus the mind. So the six senses, the six sense objects, and the six sense consciousnesses. So the, the ayatanas are the six senses and the sense objects. But then you do a fuller kind of analysis. There's got to be something that mediates. And that's the sense consciousness. Okay. Any other discussion of this material? Yes?
3: It just it seems a little bit odd that there's such a
1: nihilistic like you're
0: overemphasizing that's because because people who are well trained good Buddhists always think they've got the answer and they need to be undercut. This is not meant to be taught this is not what you learn the first day in Buddhist kindergarten. First you have to learn the four truths. And Mahayanas by the way would always agree but you have to have you have to have the foundation teachings before you can before they can be properly undercut. But you know, this is this is middle school or college or something like that. This isn't Buddhist kindergarten. So I guess we'll anything else? So because believing in the four noble truths is not that's not enlightenment. Not, it's very far from enlightenment to just believe in the Four Noble Truths. If you actually understand the Four Noble Truths, you don't need to be moulding them anymore. Big difference there. <laughs> I, maybe, I
1: don't know if I can kind of phrase the question right, Rita, but. I, I think I understand, at least on a intellectual conceptual level, what the Heart Sutra is trying to teach or trying to point to, but I guess the question is not so much what it's trying to point to, but why? Like, uh, you know, because in the suttas and the, the discourses that maybe refer back to the historic Buddha, you know, mostly he's talking about Ivana or Nirvana as the cessation of greed, anger, delusion in the mind. Mm -hmm. And so he he really is talking about ignorance ceasing in the mind Mm -hmm. and self-centered activity ceasing in the mind Mm -hmm. as the fruit of practice, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And then to make this, like seems like more of a, a maybe philosophical point about. Emptiness, which made sense philosophically to me, that uh, that the wrath doesn't exist as or doesn't uh, exist as a, as anything except a means to have a realization mm-hmm. or to have an understanding. Why make that point? I guess that's what I'm asking. Like, what's the skillful
0: means? The skillful, of it, this point? The skillful means of making the point is that, at least as the early Mahayana saw it. The Abhidharmists were so wrapped up in their intellectual analysis, yeah. they did not actually understand that the raft is for getting across the river. Yeah. And this is to bring them back to the point that the raft is to get across the river. Yeah. And that being a good Abhidhamist, or as I'm putting it, having memorized the Four Noble Truths does not make you enlightened. Um, and it, you know, I don't know whether the allegations are true or not, but the people who were doing this literature felt that that they were being taught a stuffy dead system that was purely intellectual, and being taught uh, you know how to look at something and and look at this room and find out all the seventy two Dharmas that are in this room but not recognize that this room is empty of inherent existence. And there's a certain point at which, when people are too caught up in the positive results of their analysis, you just need to cut the foundations out from under. And that shock is very liberating. I think that's a fundamental Buddhist method, that when people are too sure. This is what we were talking about at dinner. When people are too sure that I've got it, that's the time to go, uh, let's, let's cut you down a few. You know, this, as I said, this is not kindergarten. This is not what, this is not in a Mahayana context either. What you teach people in the beginning, but when people become too complacent about what they've got, then, you know, you have to come along and uh, knock people out of their complacency. So this, as I said, this is the end of the deconstructive part of the Heart Sutra, and at this point. Right here, it takes a turn and starts to build something else. Uh, Therefore, this is what you understand. No path, no wisdom, no attainment, and no non-attainment. Because you understand that, therefore, Shariputra, because bodhisattvas have no attainment, they abide by means of prajnaparamita. There's a very famous phrase in Zen training that's called no gaining mind. You heard that phrase, no gaining mind? The point is that we don't practice to gain something because that's also carrying a raft around on our backs. We practice just to practice. By just sitting, we are already enlightened. There's nothing else to do. They have no attainment. They abide by means of Prajnaparamita. This next sentence is very interesting. Since their minds are without obstruction, there is no fear. And There's a lot of discussion in much of Buddhism about fear as the ultimate ultimate obstacle. Since their minds are without obstruction, there is no fear. Having completely passed beyond all error, they go to the completion of nirvana. So here we're getting the stuff that that you want. That in fact, we do go to the completion of nirvana. Because we have given up the intellectual system we thought was the answer to everything. We have gone beyond that intellectual system. And we are actually dwelling without reference point. All Buddhas who abide in the three times have been fully awakened into unsurpassed, perfect, complete enlightenment through relying on Prajnaparamita. So the Buddhas of the three times, that is the past, present, and future. Uh, have been fully awakened into unsurpassed, perfect, complete enlightenment. Um, that's in Sanskrit, Samyak Sam Buddha. What is that in Pali? It's the same thing, Samyak Sam Buddha. Through relying on Prajnaparamita. So how do you get to full awakening? Not through doing Abhidhamma analysis, but through Prajnaparamita, which uh, undercuts all that analysis and leaves you without any answers. Which leaves you I always go back to what the Buddha said when people would ask him what is the state of an arahat after death the Buddha would always say, It is beyond all categories. Mine doesn't go there. So you know, as I am presenting this, I don't really see a huge very much of a difference between this and well, the teachings in the suttas, but there's this big intervening huge block of activity called Abhidhamma, which did come up with a term called real existence, whatever they meant by real existence. So they rely on perfect, complete enlightenment. They attained awake, fully awakened into unsurpassed, perfect, complete enlightenment through relying on Prajnaparamita. And then this takes a turn here now that will seem very strange to you. Uh, Therefore, the Prajnaparamita mantra, the mantra of great insight, the unsurpassed mantra, the mantra equal to the unequaled, the mantra that fully pacifies all suffering. Since it is not false, it should be known to be true. The Prajnaparamita mantra is said in this way. So a mantra, uh, obviously early Buddhists didn't use mantras at all. The historical Buddha thought they were nonsense. So you can see a lot of time has passed here when you have a Buddhist text saying this mantra is kind of a little, I don't know, magical, little magical key. You just memorize this mantra and say it. It's a little magical key. Now, how are mantras used in Buddhism, in Mahayana-Vajrayana Buddhism? They're actually used as uh, reference points for stabilizing the mind. they're, they're, you know, they're, they're an object of varshamata. You stabilize the mind. Instead of stabilizing with the breath, you stabilize with the mantra. Um, and each deity has its own mantra. Um, and the meanings of mantras... Are, well, mantras were never translated out of Sanskrit into any of the other languages. Uh, And you are not supposed to be focusing on the intellectual meaning of a mantra when you say a mantra. The emphasis is on the sound and the vibrations of the sound, the the kind of vibrations the sound sets up in your body. And this is all going back into uh, things that were pre-Buddhist and were well known in pre-Buddhist religions in India. So one of the accusations against Vajrayana is that it brought in a lot of Hindu methods into Buddhism. And that's true. It's true that it went back to a lot of Vedic forms that the historical Buddha had rejected. That's an accurate assessment. Doesn't make Vajrayana meaningless, but it is an accurate historical assessment. The mantra itself is gate gate paragate sam um, bodhi. gate is the past participle of the verb that means to go. So gone, gone, gone beyond, completely gone beyond, awake. If you're gonna translate the mantra, that's what it means. Gone, gone, completely gone. Or no, gone beyond would be the second one completely gone beyond. Bodhi, obviously, means awake. And svaha is a word that's put at the end of mantras. Usually people say it means something like, yay. Shariputra, bodhisattva, mahasattva, should train in the profound Prajnaparamita in this way. Uh, then the transcendent victor rose from that samadhi and said to the Bodhisattva, the Mahasafariya, Avalokiteshvara, wonderful, wonderful, Osana, et etc. There isn't really much um, to see beyond this point. Uh, the Buddha awakens or arises from his meditation and says, oh, this is really great, uh, Avalokiteshvara. Uh, and then in the end, the, the transcendent victor, Ayushman Shariputra, the Bodhisattva, the Mahasattva, Arya, Lavalokiteshvara, and the whole retinue, the entire world, gods, humans, <coughs> demigods, and Gandharvas, rejoiced to raise the words of the transcendent victor. So um, that's the heart syndrome. Um Anything? Yes? So
3: you- talked a lot about the historical context and how it arose in reaction to our dharma, and the session on the outcomes. And it's, this was an undercutting of that. So, how do you see this sutra then as a valuable tool today, without having necessarily such a rigorous training and all the stuff that came?
0: Well, I think that uh, let me let me read my, my notes to try to answer that question, and then we can talk about it. Oh. It's the method of always questioning what's established that is the norm. That's the value of the Heart Sutra today. It's an example, a very good example, of the method of always questioning whatever you've come up with as the final answer rather than saying, this is it. I've got it. And I would insist that that method always remains important. So the directing, I wrote this, is being directed to Mahayanists. Mahayanists need to remember that it's the method of always questioning what's established that is the norm, not the new categories. Not, you know, it isn't any more helpful to say no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind than it is to say, you know, <laughs> eye, ear, nose, body, tongue, but eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. They're both just lists of categories or results of um, questioning, results of analysis. The radical new approach easily and quickly becomes the established orthodoxy. And that happens time after time after time in all fields. And then it's not really different from the old orthodoxy it questions so vigorously once upon a time. Also remember that, by and large, Mahayana returns to the familiar Abhidharma categories once we can agree that they are agreed upon tokens, mere names. It's a very common phrase in Mahayana literature that these things that we have held on to so tightly, they're OK if we would remember that they're mere names. They're not more than names. You've given them more reality than they actually can, can handle. But once we agree that they are agreed upon tokens, mere names, Abhidharma is actually a good naming system. I mean, that's why we start out teaching the five skandhas before we teach emptiness. Um, it's a good naming system once we remember that even names are empty. Uh, which in modern language is to say that they are culturally conditioned and culturally relative. That all naming systems, all forms of language are limited by being historically and culturally conditioned rather than uh, by being absolute. Yes? Um, so
2: you're making the case that the classification of the four noble truths is a noble path. You know, useful classification. Do you think the 75 dharmas is a useful
0: classification? I think it probably can be. Um, did, did you see
2: what I mean? I mean you know, there's a, it seems to me that there's a kind of shift there between.
0: The, that the four truths I mean, are a little. We're talking about <coughs>
2: complete nonsense but once we're above 8 or 12 things, you know, and then they're just splitting hairs, and how many angels on the head of the page. That level, you know. mm-hmm. or do you think all Abhidhamma is, you know, useful, potentially useful classical? I think it's
0: potentially useful because, um, you know, the five, the five skandhas is still, those are still, that's still fairly crude analysis. The 75 dharmas is more fine tuned, and you can do more with a more fine tuned analysis as long as you don't make it into some kind of final truth. Um, But, obviously, it's also a question of how much much are you going to invest in learning Abhidharma. Um, You certainly could, as the Heart Sutra does. You can jump straight from the preliminary categories, the skandhas, the ayatanas, the dhatus, the nidanas. You can jump straight from understanding those straight to emptiness. You don't need to do the Abhidharma in between. What I'm suggesting is that historically, I think a lot of the impetus for this kind of text is the um, complete buying into the Abhidharma system that seems to have been so dominant some centuries after the life and death of the Buddha. Yes? Do you have
3: any um, explanation or idea about why it is that this is, uh, the teaching is not given by the Buddha,
0: it's given by how is that? Um, I think it's because the Mahayanists of some level understood and admitted that they were actually bringing in new teachings. So they have the Buddha approve it. The Buddha says, yeah, this is good. But I think, I, think, I mean, I've actually suggested that, that if you look closely at this text, Uh, The Mahayanists are admitting that, in fact, we are bringing in something that hadn't explicitly been said by the historical Buddha, only implicitly. I mean, they would certainly say that that the Raft parable, the teachings about the state of an enlightened one after death, uh, neither exists, nor does not exist, nor both nor neither, that all of those statements imply, when you really think about it, or as Nagarjuna says, if you really think about the implications of pratitya samuppada, what you come out with is emptiness. Nothing exists by itself. And that's such a succinct, clear statement. Nothing exists inherently. Because I think it's very easy to, you know, think you've. This is what I said in my gender talk, too. And it's very easy to think you don't believe in the categories when, in fact, you still do. Um, but I think that's why uh, it's presented as the Buddha approves of the teaching, but it's not actually given by him. That the Mahayanists, in this case at least, are are saying we are putting a new wrinkle on what we consider to be the, the pith of the Buddhist teachings.
2: I, I missed the beginning of uh, your talk, but. Um, uh, just in terms of this as a skillful method or tool, you know, um, I used to chant regularly. As you know, um, and I'm wondering if that's how it was, um, if it was meant to be a chant. Because for me, it's it's a different thing to talk about it, and think about it, than to sit with it and meditate and chant yeah.
0: with it. Yeah. It's like
3: really. President
0: release, yeah. you know, in yeah. these words. So I just Yeah, that, that, I did say, it, as I was reading it, I said it seems very odd to read it rather than to chant it. And, you know, liturgy is very different from um, philosophy. But yet, even though this is used liturgically, it also has to be understood philosophically. There was, yes. Oh.
3: You say something about of, skandhas of being empty. Who saw it? You mean in this text? Well
0: Avalokiteshvara says he saw it the five, I think it's uh the saw. Avalokiteshvara was practicing. The he the he saw, I'm sure that's Avalokiteshvara. But, but there is no he. What do you mean? Yeah, well, that's the fact that we're stuck with language.
3: But what is that? How, how, how do we take that?
0: Well, I think that we take it in an ordinary relative sense that even when we attain enlightenment, we still use pronouns like I and you, because oh, there's no other way to communicate verbally. And verbal communication is so important for getting any kind of contemplative understanding from one person to another. So yeah, there's no he. But metaphorically speaking, he, or analogously speaking, he saw the five skandhas uh, as empty of inherent existence. I mean, language is always very limited. So it's a verbal convention. <coughs> you don't look convinced.
3: Well, I guess um, we talked about this in some of the discussions in, in the center presents under practice. We talked about the five scandals, um, the five scandals.
0: Yeah. There's yeah, there's no any Yeah, there's no one who sees that the five skandhas are empty. We just talk that way because it's conventional speech. But you know, if you say I am enlightened, that's an oxymoron, right? I mean, whether or not one is to say I to put I and enlightened in the same sentence would be an oxymoron because there's no one <laughs> to be either confused or enlightened. Which is how us Marianists like to talk. What? You said that Apolokiteshva was
3: not historical. Right. How would you know that?
0: How would we know that? Because we know... <laughs> We know who he is in Mahayana iconography and Mahayana story, and there's no character named Avalokiteshvara in any of the Pali suttas. Oh, so only in Mahayana, the Sanskrit the text.
2: Pardon? But he only
0: appears in the Mahayana text? Um, I'm not absolutely positive about that, but he's, if he does appear at all well, in any non Mahayana, he's, he's very important in. Mahayana countries and in Mahayana Buddhism, we know what he looks like. You know, people people make pictures of him. And I don't know, in terms of history, exactly when people began to. <coughs> I think I need a glass of water if I could have. Um, where exactly when people began to talk about these characters like Avalokiteshvara and Manjushri? Even Maitreya, I don't know. I haven't done that research exactly when people started to talk about the, the Buddha of the next age, Maitreya, who, who is currently a bodhisattva. But um, you know, you'd never find a, a Pali Sutta that had this kind of storyline and these this cast of characters together. It just it's just not done. So, um, so uh, after my notes here, after we talk about whatever, whatever categories we <clears throat> come up with are culturally conditioned and culturally relative. Um, this is the unbelievably liberating insight that frees us from trying to believe in even our most trusted system. It frees us from trying to believe in. frees us from trying to believe in things, which is, you know, pretty freeing. Uh, frees us from thinking our culture or our religion or lineage is ultimately superior to any other. Also, it is important for Mahayanas to go back to the raft parable, which always gets forgotten. I think I want to, here you are. It's hard for people to remember that our most cherished insights are empty and culturally conditioned. It is very hard for us to remember that our most cherished insights are empty and culturally conditioned. There is tremendous resistance to that. When it comes to the definitive teachings, do you have this distinction between? You must have the distinction between the provisional and the definitive teachings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very, very important in Mahayana. When it comes to the, quote, definitive teachings, we need to remember that these are just the best words that we can come up with now.
1: In the as a Buddha, or it gets translated as mundane, and super mundane. Sometimes. Yes,
0: it means the same thing.
1: Yeah.
0: It's just. Uh... Okay. So that's uh, the end of what I wanted to, to say about Nagarjuna and the Heart Sutra. Um, The case I'm making is that, as I see it, there's nothing fundamentally different, radically different, in the Garjana and the Heart Sutra from in the the, the, um, sutta teachings of the historical Buddha. Um, Even though the the words, know this, know that, know the other, know everything, are an unfamiliar way of putting the the teaching. It's the same basic teaching. So, uh, if there are any final comments on that, otherwise, um, I've got one more uh, one more point that I'll try to make very briefly. I have a thought, uh,
1: maybe it'd be nice to hear your comments on. But like just, you know, as looking at the different historical developments of Buddhism or Buddhist practice, maybe, even a better way to say it. When you think about just understanding the different expressions of Buddhist practice in terms of skillful means, like the the different kinds of skillful means Mm -hmm. that have been developed, and maybe even some of those skillful means were dead ends, Mm -hmm. like human beings experimented, Mm -hmm. thought they understood something about what this way of practice was pointing to and came up with skillful means that either were or were not effective.
0: I very much am sympathetic to that, saying that all teachings, in my view, are skillful means. Some of them work better for some people than others do. Were there any that were dead ends? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sometimes tempted to throw Abhidharma into that pile. Throw Throw Abhidharma into that pile. (laughs) I'm sometimes tempted to throw uh, Vajrayana visualization practices into that pile. A very, very, one thing I think is that the more complicated the skillful means is, perhaps the less useful it is. But no, I'm very sympathetic to the notion that these are all skillful means. And the question is to find the ones that we are most karmically vibrate with so that we can walk a path that works. And not to rank them. Not to say, this is the Buddha taught and that the Buddha didn't teach. I mean, historically, we can say the historical Buddha taught this or that. But in terms of Buddha as the archetype of enlightened mind, uh, Buddha as the enlightened mind taught them all, in my view. Yes? I'm
3: very sympathetic to that view as well. However, the pushback against that that uh, does that not just a state of supreme
0: relativism and, and so what no view? no it doesn't if the, if the practices do not lead to any kind of um, I'll use just some very mundane words improvement in the quality of the human beings then they're not then they're not decent skillful means but even you know what I have found is that even the Buddhist paths I have the most difficulty understanding like Pure Land devotional paths. If I really take the time, if I really, really take the time to follow through the through the practices and through the teachings of a Pure Land Buddhist, what's in it for them, it takes on a whole different quality. And yet, you know, one can't say that Pure Land Buddhism has not helped many, many Buddhists be better people, even though it's not a very appealing form of Buddhism to me. So that's that's when people always ask me that when I talk about not ranking and not judging teachings, isn't that complete relativism? And I always say, no, it's not complete relativism, because by their fruits you shall know them, to quote a different text and a different religion. But, but is that, again, then to take it the next step further then, is it not true that the case that all religions then should be judged by their ability to cause improvement? Yes. Be the proof of its yes. So yes. Way. And by that criterion, as I've said in other places when I talk about religious diversity rather than Buddhist diversity, by that criterion, all major religions are both true and false. By that criterion, all major religions are both true and false, in that they have produced saints and they have produced terrible people. You know, Buddhism's produced some pretty awful people too. Yes?
2: I just want to kind of comment on the question. Something that's going on in my Sangha right now is um, we're shifting teachers. So uh, we talked at dinner about, you know, we're going, we've been doing kind of conventional, I would say, Theravada body focused meditations for seven or eight years. and suddenly there's a teacher coming in and says, uh, Look at your mind mm-hmm. and don't get hung up on your breath. Mm-hmm. what's really shaking the people up, I mean, it really is, it's like people are really, What? I'm just looking at my breath anymore? My breath. You know, and, and it's just talk about undercutting. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's seriously undercutting. Isn't it
0: amazing that people can get so attached to. Yeah. I mean, that, but that's a very good, that's so instructive because when you're that attached to a specific, very narrow method, you've missed a major point. I mean, I can tell the same story in my son. I was, I was teaching at, at, in 99 at a big, long meditation program, and the teacher switched the focus from only noting the out breath to n- noting both the in and the out breath, and people lost it.
2: Yeah,
0: breath. Right. <laughs> they just lost it. So
2: it's, it's, I mean, there's so is many right. meditators.
0: If you read the manuals, and I've read a lot of meditation manuals now in a lot of traditions, there are so many methods of practice. There are so many reference points, both the in-breath and the out-breath, just the out-breath, a mantra, a statue, a <laughs> stick of incense. There are so many ways to stabilize the mind. You know, and then stabilizing the mind is only the first step anyway. After you've got a stable mind, then you've got to figure out, what is it? Who is this? You know, they've got to go on to insight after you've developed some stability. So I think it's great that they're getting all shook up. This is going to be as good a lesson as they, they, they could ever get. I, I agree. I, it definitely
2: feels liberating as the flip side. In the sense of, yeah, shock
0: is usually
2: yeah, a wake-up
0: wake experience. I
2: want historically. I mean, because what I see here is like a bunch of eggheads you know, saying all the concepts that you learned before are empty. So concepts are
0: formed, so they're empty. Mm-hmm. So, um, but historically, were there was there you know similar? sense of, I mean, yes, probably problem ordinary practice. Yeah, you know, that's, what, it, that's why Mahayana and Theravada split apart, was because there were people who were so shocked, saw this as, you know, oh, my God, you, you mean I'm supposed to focus on my mind, not my breath? Yeah. No, I'm going to continue to focus on my breath, period. Yeah. <laughs> you and, know. This, and, what, and historically that, that
2: was what? That,
0: what do you mean? Was, you you said? Well, that probably, you know, that was that was one of the one of the things that, that was starting to be talked about, what, some four centuries, three, four centuries after the death of the Buddha, and some people said, hey, this is really liberating, and other people said, no, it's not. Uh, and
2: the no ones saying, no, it's
0: not, they were the Theravadins. Well, but Mahayanas would say they're the ancestors of the Theravadins. But see, yeah. I, I'm not. I, you can find liberation or imprisonment in any Buddhist system. It's not that one Buddhist system is all liberating and the other one is all. That's like thinking that, well, if we're not going to focus on the breath, we're not really meditating anymore. The the, the point of view, both focusing on the breath and watching what goes on in one's mind, they're both liberating techniques. It's not that one is right and the other one is wrong. But people love to. People love to, you know, get very attached to and focused on one form and reject other forms. I'll
1: just say something about that because, you know, uh, I always was always sort of my natural inclination to uh, be interested in the mind all the way from the beginning of my practice. And in later years, I found it very helpful. Like, because skillful means mean it's illuminating something that's not yet seen. That's what a skillful means is. So by taking a simple technique like focusing on my breath and not investigating, reveals the attachment to investigation, for Mm -hmm. example, for me. It was very illuminating to give my mind something very simplistic to do. And to stick to it really revealed a lot of attachment. So it's
0: It's good. It also, I mean, One of the, when when I teach Mahamudra, one of the exercises that I always make people do is just count their in and out breaths up to 108, which um, will take 15 or 20 minutes. And to see if you can actually hold your mind steady for 15 or 20 minutes, because you can't do true insight meditation if you can't hold your mind on what you're contemplating. If your mind is just going everywhere the way it wants to, that's just discursive mind. A lot of people, a lot, a lot of people in my sangha, which has a very loose technique and there's a lot of room for for investigating mind, thought that um, they were doing very advanced practices when all they were doing was sitting and letting their minds lead them wherever the mind wanted to go. And that's why they got pulled back to you will now focus on both the in and the out breath. But these are all skillful means. You don't want to fixate on any one of them as it. And for people in your sangha to, I mean, it's also people quit meditating after a certain point because, you know, if you only get the instruction count your in and out breaths and never get any further meditation instruction, you're going to spend your whole life counting your in and out breaths. That isn't going to get you very far. You have to, you know, if you need more than one technique. Well, we now have 10, maybe 15 minutes left. uh, And we've talked about one side of what was going on in the origins of Mahayana Buddhism, the side where, in my view, there really isn't that big a difference from the the Pali Buddhism or Buddhism of the suttas or Theravada Buddhism. And I wanted to talk just a little bit about the side of Mahayana Buddhism where there is a very big difference. And I think everybody agrees that there's just a fork in the road. At this particular point, and that, of course, is about the Bodhisattva vow, um, which I've said a few times. Uh, I think I'm going to. I've got 14 pages of notes, 16 pages of notes here on this, so I think I'm going have to have to just leave my notes altogether behind. Um, so, what was going on? First of all, there's one thing I want to say about origins of Mahayana. All the historical records I've ever read indicate to me. That there was some kind of major um, ossification and scandal in the Buddha's Sangha some sometime after the death of the Buddha. Um, that, that, you know, there, <laughs> it, like at any time there's a major scandal, and especially if it's combined with ossification, new movements develop. It, the, the system got very rigid. It has to do with bones, solid like bones. Um, and I think both things happened that there were scandals and that the system became very rigid. And that leads, is going to lead to the developments of new movements. And I think it's almost inevitable that any system gets rigid after a while, which is what gives birth to new movements. And often, then, those new movements have the effect of rejuvenating the old system as well. So it's, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think it's something to be so mourned that new movements develop and religions split apart and they aren't all on the same page all the time. But I think that was a major factor leading to the emergence of Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, but the idea, this bodhisattva path, that one should, rather than becoming enlightened, Becoming an arhat, one should take the bodhisattva vow. Because that's what one stream of Mahayana thinking was very strongly advocating. That you should not become an arhat. You should not seek to become an arhat. You should take the bodhisattva vow. What does it mean to take the bodhisattva vow? It means to become a fully enlightened Buddha in some world system sometime in the future it means to discover the four noble truths and present the dharma in a world where it has never been heard before so that's a you know a very lofty aspiration and also a very very long path now why did why did this notion suddenly come into come into buddhism and come to be attractive to a lot of people One of the reasons seems to me to be that the people who claimed to be arhats or who were recognized as arhats had become, uh, we talked about it as kind of a boys club, had become um, an elite who expected a lot of service from other people and didn't especially give them all that much. So within a 100 years after the death of the Buddha, people were complaining. That the people who, you know, people who were claiming to be or were acknowledged to be arhats a hundred years after the death of the Buddha weren't very nice. They were a self-centered elite, and people were saying, "Why should we give those people all this well, deference?" There's no evidence that they're really so hot. Um, so that was part of it. That. That the people later on who were acclaimed as Arhats didn't seem all that worthy to the people of their own day. You know, it's like, um, it's sort of like, well, why should we revere ex-teacher if we know that ex-teacher misuses money or, you know, has all sorts of other strange behaviors going on? That was clearly going on uh, as soon as 100 years after the death of the Buddha. But I think an even more important factor in, um, so the Arhats were, people were saying, these Arhats, I'm not sure that they're that worthy of emulation. Do I really want to be like, um, you know, pick any leader you want, do I really want to be like that person? No, that's not my idea of an ideal person. But the other thing that was also going on at the same time is that people were losing confidence in the ability to become enlightened. And that, I think, is very, very easy to demonstrate as we go through the texts. In the Pali Suttas, time after time after time, the Buddha gives someone instruction, tells them go find a tree, go find an abandoned house, meditate, and soon he became another of the arahats. Sentences Time after time in the polytexts, but that and soon he became another of the arhats, or soon she became another of the arhats. That sentence was just used less and less and less, and people really didn't think of themselves as being able to become enlightened in this life, but only in some future life. Um that happened a lot after the time of Ashoka when Buddhism became was becoming a much more popular religion, much less elite religion. When, you know, the majority of Buddhists those enlightened in this life? I don't think so. And then you combine that with these arhats, they're not such ideal types anyway. What should I really strive for? Well, one early answer was, "I'll strive to become, to to be reborn in Maitreya with Maitreya, and come back to Earth when the next Buddha comes. That's what I want: is to be reborn in the future when Maitreya, Bodhisattva Maitreya, become, becomes the Buddha of the next world age. But this was also a time by which." All the mythology about the Buddha's previous lives was well in place. All the stories about how he took the Bodhisattva vow so many eons ago and practiced all these lives, you know, all the Jataka stories about all the Buddha's previous lives. And people began to say, well, what would be the most worthy thing I could possibly think of doing? It wouldn't be to be an arhat, it would be to be more like the Buddha the buddha really had had a high, he took he took such a lofty vow so long ago <coughs> to take as long as it took to be able to bring dharma into a universe where there was no dharma that's what i should strive for too that's what i want to do and you know to be more like the buddha is ultimately the reason why people take the bodhisattva vow to be more like the Buddha who practiced until he could bring the Dharma into a world system in which it was totally unknown, rather than to take advantage of the teachings being available and uh, become an arhat and not have to put up with samsara anymore. Uh, I think that um, you know, to understand, it (coughs) even took me a long time to catch on to that, because I'm pretty skeptical about this bodhisattva stuff, but to catch on to the the idealism, and the—I um, don't know exactly what word to use—that the highest thing one could possibly do would be to emulate the Buddha. And emulating the Buddha means that as long as it takes, however long it takes, I will bring Dharma into a universe in which it is unknown. Do
1: you think, Rita, that part of that was—I, uh, you know—I hadn't thought about this until you last few comments, but that maybe it was just a very engaging story, you know, the Jataka tales and the Paramitas, these qualities that it's really accessible teaching, mm-hmm. it's inspirational teaching. Right. And when you compare that to dependent origination, which right. is very subtle, hard mm-hmm. hard to get hard to get, that people wouldn't say, Well yeah, this I get, this I like, this mm-hmm. I'll do.
0: Well, it was also because as Buddhism was becoming a much more popular religion, the vast majority of people couldn't identify with the Arhats, but they could identify with the Buddha's previous lives. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, it's not always to a religion's advantage to become popular and widespread. Um, and I think that. Um, this, this whole idealism of taking the bodhisattva vow, but I'm not gonna just, this is what gives Mahayanists the feeling that, that um, <coughs> we're more compassionate because we don't rest with individual enlightenment. We won't rest until everyone is enlightened, which of course to the Theravadins can often sound like taking a vow to hang around in samsara, well, you know, a vow to eternalism. Yes.
3: Yes. I mean, in line, line with this, is, it always sort of struck me that the, the notion of the Arahad path, the Theravada path was sort of un-Buddha-like in the sense that it was about me, I'm going to get the heck out of here because I can.
0: That's what the Buddha taught, though. It, 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 it the historical that. Buddha taught that. He also
3: taught that to people. So he wasn't, otherwise he would have sat under the tree and just... Right. Wouldn't have ever gotten nothing on the Saranath and started spreading the word. So, right. I mean, that's, you know, just, it always seemed like that Bodhisattva Tzatviva was trying to attempt to capture that more generous, open. Yeah, body. well, that's
0: how Mahayanas like to put it anyway. Now, you know, Arhats, uh, Arhats also, in, in, Buddhas and Arhats both teach others. The difference between a Buddha and an arhat is that an arhat could not have ever figured out the four truths without the Buddha's teaching. But once the Buddha has taught it, then what the arhat understands is exactly what the Buddha understands. He just needed a teacher. That's the huge difference. Then after the arhat's enlightenment experience, he he or she also teaches. So arhats have compassion. It's not that they don't have compassion, but there was this Emphasis on you know, not hanging out in samsara. Never again lying in the womb. Very strong emphasis. But in Mahayana teachings, that's also in the long run the ultimate teaching that eventually one isn't going to be reborn in samsara. Uh, and there's lots of discussion about bodhisattvas have a slight attachment to the notion that there's someone to save or someone to be compassionate for. They have that slight attachment yet. And that's why they're not Buddhas. It's because they're still hanging on to their ego view of I'm a compassionate person. I've watched a lot of people, especially Mahayanists, who I think beginning to view oneself as a super compassionate person is one of the biggest ego traps you can get into. It's really an intense. Form of egoism that I'm—I'm I'm so compassionate. I think it's—it's it's something to really watch out for. We're running out of time. We are definitely running out of time. But I wanted to give you just this little hint, anyway, of uh, the other side of uh, the emergence of Mahayana Buddhism—the whole, you know, this whole bodhisattva thing. Now there are Theravada Buddhists even today who do take the Bodhisattva vow. It's just a very minor movement within Theravada. Do you know any who do?
1: Well, I mean the famous one, uh, Ajahn Man, who was the founder of the Thai Forest tradition, uh, had vowed to be a Buddha, and then part of his story in this, his last lifetime, evidently, is he decided to renege on that and to be an Arhat. And he, I mean, see an example where so much good came from his life, and. Um, so that's, but yeah, within Burma too, There's, there are people who basically are up front. I'm, you know, I'm on the bodhisattva path. I'm not practicing for enlightenment. I'm practicing to develop the Mm-hmm.
0: So even at this, you know, what often seems to be the real fork in the road between the traditions, it's not absolute. Um, because, you know, my teacher says... What she's said about the bodhisattva path is, well, that's a nice story for you to think about now. And then she says, don't ever be afraid to get enlightened. Think of the example of the Buddha and all the good he's done in the world by becoming enlightened. Don't be afraid to become enlightened. (laughs) Um, She also says, you know, it's pretty arrogant to think that pretty, you know, not arrogant, pretty, How do you know that you're going to come back in a better form, more able to help in your next life? Work with the situation you have now. This may never be repeated again. So don't take any chances. Get enlightened now while you have the precious human body and the teachings. Patrice? I'm just wondering if you
2: could say something briefly about how um, the bodhisattva vow is Practice in, in the sense that um, some of the early understand, the understanding of Buddhist practice, uh, Theravada practice, is that it's not
0: proselytizing, it's not missionary. It's um, so in the sense of um, vowing to save all sentient
2: beings. Yeah, right. I'm wondering about. What that means in a more concrete way?
0: Well, it means I don't I don't think see any big difference there between different forms of Buddhism. It means that um, most forms of Buddhism believe that eventually all beings will be enlightened. It's just going to take a while. So. Um, it's just being willing to hang around for the whole show. It doesn't have anything. It doesn't make Buddhism more or less missionary-oriented at all.
2: Because it have a more ethical dimension
0: in terms of. Sometimes. You know, in terms of everyday practice of Buddhists, I don't think it makes any difference. Because if you practice the Eightfold Path. In our ethical, you practice compassion. Maybe the only difference is that, in terms of the four immeasurables, there's much more emphasis on friendliness in Theravada Buddhism, much more emphasis on compassion in Mahayana Buddhism. But, you know, the difference between friendliness and compassion, that's an interesting question. But um,
2: well, I think
0: in, in the Theravada tradition, ultimately, it's a lot of equanimity. Well, there is in the Mahayana tradition as well. They're not different in terms of equanimity. They're not different. Um, I mean, this is like we need another whole course to get further into this. I, I can't. I really can't do an adequate job, um, having should had with the class officially having ended five minutes ago. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. But in terms of everyday practical lifestyle, I don't think it makes a lot of difference. For Mahayanists, refuge and bodhicitta are, I mean, you you take the refuge vow first, which is becoming a Buddhist. Then you take the bodhisattva vow sometime after that. But in daily practice, you do refuge and bodhicitta together. You go for refuge to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And um, recognizing that all beings are enlightened, um, I dedicate all of my effort to making them realize, to helping them realize they're enlightened. That's about what it comes out to. Recognizing that all beings are inherently enlightened, I will use my energy to help them realize that.
1: This could be a nice topic for a workshop if it, if it makes sense to you at some point to talk more about bodhicitta, compassion. And uh, sort of that particular skillful means how it evolved over time. I kind of encourage you to, to consider doing that in, in May, maybe for a, like a day-long workshop or a half-day workshop.
0: Yeah, well, we should talk about that for a few minutes um, after the mm-hmm. meeting ends. I really, I don't think I can do much in a half-day workshop. It's barely longer than one of these talks. Yeah. And as you know, I'm used to teaching in full weekend programs. Um, I've got most of the stuff I do in 10-hour 10 10 hour lecture packages. But we should, we should talk about what to go on with next. Is I've thrown out a number of suggestions over the, the course. And if people want to know more about Mahayana Buddhism, want to study Mahayana sutras. I don't know, four. we've talked about four measurals, but you just taught that material.
2: Yeah, but I think
0: that's OK. But in any case, do you people have a dedication of merit? Do you dedicate? Mm-hmm. Would you do it for me? I'd like yes, to hear what your dedication yes. is. You know,
1: well, we actually have one in the chat books that we could actually read together. Should so we do it that much? people can pass those out. On, I just want
0: to do it alone. And I'll do one verse of one of the dedications we do, which is actually attributed to Nagarjuna.
1: This actually it comes from uh, some version of Joseph Bolstein, and you know that uh, he has some Tibetan teachers. So. It has some Tibetan. It's on page 38, top of 38.
0: Well, how about I do one verse of our dedications first, and then we can do this one together? It's nice to end. I can dedicate the merit of the whole, class, whole four sessions. By this merit, having attained omniscience and defeated the enemy of wrongdoing, may I free all beings from the ocean of existence with its tumultuous waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. May
1: this life and practice be for the benefit of all beings.
0: May the blessings of this life and practice be shared with my parents and teachers, teachers, family family and friends, and with all beings beings everywhere. May the the merit of this practice be joined with all the wholesome actions of the past, past, present, and future, and and together may it be dedicated to the welfare, happiness, and liberation of all beings. May all beings be at ease, free suffering.
1: On behalf of everyone in the community, thank you, Rita, for traveling on this way to teach us these last four weeks. I'm really grateful. And we'll find some other way for you to come back and teach. And if uh, people would like to contribute to Rita, finally heard you can leave a donation and the donation go on the entrance right. Or if you don't have your checkbook and you want to do it later, uh, you can just send that in. Or you can always go online too, but just put in the memo line that it's a a gift for Rita's class. And then brain will make sure that she gets some Donna. Any other announcements for
3: the community?
1: Thank you for listening.